Hello, and welcome to Two Hearts, a new Who podcast. I'm Callum. And I'm James, and this is the only podcast that's modern art. I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty good though, right? Every week here on Two Hearts, we take a look at another episode from the Doctor Who revival, and this week we are looking back at a fixed point in time that is the fires of Pompeii. But before that, just a quick reminder that if you ever feel like you want to join in on the conversation, you can email us at twoheartspodcast at gmail.com to have your thoughts and feelings shared on the show. That's to the word two. Or you can reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Two Hearts Pod the number two. Um, we are really bad at doing this, but if you could could also um you know rate and subscribe on itunes um we only bring that up because we have received our first just wonderful five-star review on itunes um it's it's a very sweet comment uh whoever out there left that for us thank you so much we we genuinely really appreciate it um before we get into anything else though uh how are you doing cal oh you know i'm pretty good <laughs> Um, the reason why I'm so woefully unprepared to answer that question is because I've just come off uh, of my first day working from home, uh, because this state has gone into a, not a lockdown again, but like a preemptive, like, don't go out kind of directive. Um, and so I still feel a bit discombobulated after the day I've had. Um, but otherwise, you know, pretty good. I think pretty good. How about you, James? Yeah, I'm okay. Also processing this weird, um, you're right. It's, it's not a full blown lockdown. They just came out and did a press conference and they were like, if you want to have just like a little bit of paranoia for fun, go for it. Um, (laughs) and so it it has left a bit of a strange taste in South Australia's mouth this week, but that is, that's life. Uh, and I mean, I'm, I'm doing fine. You know, another week, another dollar earned doing my little, my little writing pieces and whatnot. Um, I had to pay for my, uh, school fees today. Mm. And, um, let me tell you folks after, a little while of not studying, uh, going back to paying for school absolutely sucks. So, um, yeah. I'm going to help you out with some shameless self-promotion. Do you have any pieces upcoming that we could possibly read? Oh, yeah. Look, if you want to go to powerup-gaming.com, um, I currently have a preview up for Death's Door. I did a kind of like quasi-review of Fortnite Season 7. And later this month, I'll be checking out Monster Hunter Stories, which I'm pretty excited about. So, uh, look, every click there is a click in my pocket, and I would really appreciate that. So, thank you. I'll be sure to check it out. Um... Shall we check in with the Doctor Who news this week? We've had a very interesting little item pop up. Essentially another Doctor Who casting rumour, uh, but this one gained enough sort of uh, traction uh, behind it for people to assume that it was actually uh, had a, a kernel of truth to it. Um, sort of with the same kind of fervour that were followed Peter Capaldi just before he was announced. Um, so the the rumor, the latest rumor, Doctor Who wise, is that uh, Ollie, Ollie Alexander, star of Russell T Davies' recent show It's a Sin, and probably best known for the for being the front person on um, Years and Years, the band, uh, is this per- is the new person being touted as the next Doctor. I don't know about you, James. I just I'm kind of getting sick of all these like rumors, especially because Jodie Whittaker still in the role and hasn't even been announced as leaving yet. Um, I, you know, whatever we feel about God, we keep dancing around that subject, but whatever we feel about Chris Chibnall's, <laughs> uh, time on Doctor Who, I definitely like wish all the very best to Jodie Whittaker. So it just feels like supremely shitty. Um, but the other, the flip side to it is that everyone is sort of losing their collective shit over this, like Doctor Who's going to be so woke now. It's got a, a game hand on the front. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I know you have lots of thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, no, look, I mean, it, it is, it's twofold because, um, Ollie Alexander seems like a, like a, a really fantastic, um, uh, sort of face to, to have on Doctor Who. Uh, I definitely understand why people are really excited about that. I'm not personally super familiar with his work, um, but his following does seem to be quite lovely. So um, that's definitely nice. Uh, having a queer man in the role would be, um, you know, like I- I'm not saying it's going to solve any of the problems the show currently has with its... Um, 
representation of social issues, let's say, uh, because I think, as we've discussed before, a lot of that does fall on Chris Chibnall's shoulders. Um, but it is ultimately, it's one of those things where, like, no matter who we're talking about week to week could possibly be the next Doctor nobody's talking about Jodie Whittaker as the doctor. Mm. And it just feels like outside of that initial burst of like oh, a woman, um, there's just been no real pop culture discussion about her time in the role. Um, and I, I do put a lot of that at Chris Chibnall's feet. Um, and it just, it just sucks. Cause you're right. It does feel disrespectful to her. Yeah. It, especially because every single other doctor, they got their moment of, of being able to say I'm leaving. And it feels like mm. ever since Jodie stepped into the role, it's been, like, tailed by rumours of people replacing her, of, you know, who's going to come next. Joe Martin, you know, obviously this isn't her fault and, like, she's part of Chibnall's machine as well. But, like, when she came on board as this other Doctor, everyone was like, oh, she's definitely going to replace Jodie. And it's like... <laughs> I... It's part of the the I th- the the growing disillusionment that I have with Doctor Who at this present point in time, uh, and yeah, so like the reason I struggle to talk about it is because it is just like so it's just taxing to constantly be coming back to this yeah. issue again and obviously and again. here we are giving airtime to it you know like it's um mm. it's one of those things where like because we've committed to talking about whatever's in the doctor who news every fortnight like and we are in such a dry spell at the moment um this is what we're talking about and again though that kind of goes back to the fact that like i i don't like that the bbc and chibnall himself and and jody aren't out there being like fuck no like yeah this, like it's my time as the doctor can we refocus on that and I, I don't know if that's just like a civility issue or i don't know a contractual issue I, I i can't figure out what's going on there but um i think the lack of vocal support from the bbc especially amid like that massive push they just did for like um uh what was it, all the big finish stuff and just the whole mm. oh uh your favorite doctor's back but don't worry jody whittaker's not in this i exactly i don't know i it's not feeling good at the moment and it continues to feel worse and worse. And I think the boring answer is what you just said. It is that there probably is some contractual obligation, some sort of civility thing that stops them from speaking out kind of any more publicly than they already do. Um, yeah. Which... But you're right. We do give it airtime. We definitely give it airtime at the top of this episode, at the top of every single episode we record because it is all that's in the news. Uh, at the moment, uh, and this is the format we've wedded ourselves to, so <laughs> maybe we should rename the Doctor Who news segment as just, what's Chibnall done this week? Yeah, like, what bullshit has floated to the surface this time? Um, but anyway, um, <laughs> is there anything else that you want to bring up in this section, or, or are we just going to roll on like a cloud of ash and rock rolls <gasps> over a small Italian town. What a poetic transition, if clunky. Uh, no, I have nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing to add. Let's go. Let's go from the shit to the grace that is uh, Fires of Pompeii. Ancient Rome. This is fantastic. It has come. The blue box. I see the most terrible thing. Prophecies of women are limited and dull. Only the menfolk have the capacity for true perception. I'll tell you where the wind's blowing right now, mate. Doxy, you bring bad luck in this hut. We are building the future as dictated by the gods. I demand you tell me who you are. Doctor! The sky is falling. We're in Pompeii. And it's volcano day. The Fires of Pompeii is episode two of season four of the Doctor Who revival, directed by Colin... Teague, whose previous credits include the series three finale. Oh, oh boy. Uh, and written by James Moran. Um, quick plot description for you folks at home. The Doctor and Donna arrive in Pompeii a day before the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. They discover that the TARDIS has been sold to the sculptor Cacles. <laughs> Shit. It's Caecilius. <laughs> Thank you. I just watched it. <laughs> <clears throat> After exploring for some time, they discover that the TARDIS has been sold to the sculptor Caecilius. 
But when they go to retrieve it, they discover that the local auger Lucius, a town seer, has commissioned Caecilius to build a series of marble slabs that look decidedly like circuits in 79 AD. Donna is disgusted by the doctor's cavalier attitude towards the people of Pompeii and their imminent destruction, so she warns Evelina, Caecilius's daughter, of the impending volcanic eruption. She is, however, promised to the Sibylline Sisterhood, a female seer cult in Pompeii, with a mysterious high priestess, and tells them of Donna's false prophecy. The Doctor investigates Lucius's circuits with Quintus, Caecilius's son, but they are interrupted by the Seer. The Doctor discovers his arm has turned to stone, the same as Emil Evelina's and the Sibylline Sisterhood's arms. <coughs> Tremors underground alert the Doctor to an incoming threat that bursts through the floor of Caecilius's villa, a lava and stone creature called a Pyrovile, which Quintus destroys with water. Donna is kidnapped by the Sibylines to sacrifice, but the Doctor rescues her and discovers that their High Priestess is actually fully converted to stone. She speaks with the voice of the Pyrovile <laughs> and heralds the, the Pyrovile's invasion of Earth. Donna takes the Doctor to task for refusing to help Pompeii, but he stresses he knows better. As a Time Lord, he can see all of time, what must be and what must never be. Deep in Vesuvius, the Doctor discovers the circuits form part of an energy converter, drawing Vesuvius's power to attempt mass conversion of humans to pyroviles. That's why the seers can't see the eruption coming. It won't happen unless the doctor intervenes. Faced with this truth, Donna helps him make the terrible choice. They escape in a pod with Donna pleading with the doctor to just save someone. Inspired by her impassioned plea, he goes back for Caecilius and his family who live on after the destruction and set up a shrine to the doctor and Donna. I... Mm. Reading that back, and, and like I feel so bad because I I wrote that, and you obviously had to read it, and there's just so many fucking us names. <laughs> oh, and there's so much fucking I'm sure off screen, but there's so many us names in there, and it just felt so bad for you, Caecilius, Quintus, Lucius, Pyrovile. Yeah, Pyrovile really fucked me up. And it's because in the show, when they first say the name out loud, it's the uh, high priestess who was like fully turned to stone. And she sounds like a Cyberman and she's like, Pyrovile. <laughs> and so um, <laughs> I'm just not really sure how to pronounce it. <laughs> no, you did it right. And I, I knew exactly what you were doing. It's, it's one of those like things that sticks in your memory, right? Like for no reason whatsoever, other than like, other than because it's so like, uh, specific the way she says it and you're right she does sound like a cyberman she's like all electronic and like weird yeah she's got that like vibration on her voice mm. um but we we will get to the the high priestess in in due course um Pfizer Pompeii is a it's a big episode it's a dense episode even if it's a bit plot light there is a lot that happens um it is in my opinion, firing on all cylinders, and I've been really hyped to talk about this one for, for quite some time. Um, so I, I guess straight off the bat, general impressions, Callum, how do you feel about the fires of Pompeii? I think, yeah, so when I think back to, and this season I'm going to be doing a lot of this, like, even though I probably do it a lot and I haven't realised it, I'm going to be doing a lot of like, well, I remember when I was a kid and this came out, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Um, but I find it useful to sort of compare how I felt then to how I can feel now. And like, <clears throat> as a kid, uh, this was definitely an episode that I was like, oh, there's too much talking in it and not enough action. Um, <laughs> and that being combined with the fact it was a historical episode, which like I was predisposed to not enjoy because it, it felt like stodgy or like, um, like not cool and, um, concept driven like uh, a science fiction story might be i mean a, a future facing science fiction story uh i never really cared much for this episode as a kid um revisiting it as an adult i do see the charm i see the magic in it i see mostly what i see is donna and i think <laughs> a lot of my discussion this week is going to center on donna um I can't remember where I read it. I should probably start keeping notes of where I read things. But there was one particular review that of this episode that noted, like, all of the best scenes seem to revolve around or have Donna in them. And I think I'd agree with that across the episode. Like, the best aspects of this episode are have Donna at their heart. And the best aspect of this story is 
something that she, like that she brings to this show and it's just so surprising that we you know we're four seasons in and we're only really getting this kind of challenge to the doctor's attitude to time and space now and one of the things i'll be really keen to talk about in this episode is like comparing this one to previous historical episodes from russell t davies because it is entirely unlike anything we've seen up to this point um yeah i i completely agree with that i I think that in uh in blowing out the scale the way that it does it allows them to tell a dramatically larger scaled story basically um and i think that you know we're in his what fourth year as as showrunner basically and so i I, I kind of sympathize with the fact that at, at this point in his time with the show, especially eyeing off the end of his time with the show now, um, that he would be getting a little bit more introspective um, with his, his character work. And so I think that, you know, being season four, we've got enough distance now from the, oh, yay, Doctor Who's back kind of vibe. And now we can get into, but what does that mean for a, a modern audience? Like, where are we going to go with this beyond just fun adventures, time and space, some Daleks come back, big bangs, blah, blah, blah. Right. Mm. Um, and while I think it sucks that season four eventually devolves into that, I think that where we're starting here, especially Fires of Pompeii is such a, a densely dark episode to kick things off for Donna's like proper time in the TARDIS. Um, and I do think it's very deliberate because like you said, it is the first time that it feels like the show is properly grappling with um, the true implication of being able to be anywhere in time um especially in human history basically um and having having donna be the one to actively call him out is uh a very refreshing change of pace and i do think that's why uh, the majority of this episode when it's at its best it is when it's focusing on donna i still adore everything else when donna's not around as well i think i i like this episode top to bottom um but you're right the donna stuff is is the standout yeah i wouldn't say that like donna is just the only thing that's good about this episode. There is so many other elements that make this episode what it is. I mean, one of the things I said to you before we recorded was that, you know, this is probably the first, not the first, but this is probably, this is a really good David Tennant episode. And we haven't really Mm, talked much about David Tennant. So, like, there are a lot of different aspects that work for this story. I just, I guess I mean more so that, like, it just, Donna is tangentially present through the best aspects of this episode and is a good sort of like focal point to think about like well why is why is this episode a better trip to the past than some previous ones and what Mm, does her character what does her attitude to things bring that past companions didn't um i think that also i think that also extends to the writing as well and james moran's script uh which if you've read the writer's tale the russell t davies book uh you'll know he like he does with most scripts anyway uh rewrote enough of this episode to um for it not to resemble i guess what the original script um but i still think that like that core concept and the james moran's script in general like is um pretty fantastic and so nimble like it's funny it's dark it's uh it's philosophical it's adventurous it it has a lot Mm. of different elements uh that don't kind of overshadow one another um and and like it's it's carrying so much and yet it's so light on its feet totally totally um and i yeah so uh, there's a lot here to really work with i don't know about you james but i feel like a really good place to start might just be in sort of situating this episode in the context of what's come before it um and yeah because you you said about comparing it to previous historicals and like that's an angle i hadn't really considered until sitting here right now and i do i do like that because what with rose we had um uh uh gas ghosts Mm. and poets what was that called well poets um, is, he was a poet, wasn't he? Charles Dickens. Yeah, he was a he was a novelist. Eh, tomato, tomato. <laughs> Words. <laughs> is, it, is this going to be in the? Po- I'm a scientific reporter by this logic, but um, <laughs> um and then um with uh, Martha, we obviously had um 
witches and Shakespeare. Mm. And so I guess to have like their second stories be those historical ones. And then by the time that you get to Donna, you've got this, you've got fires of Pompeii. It is quite a, a step up, isn't it? Totally. And you're right to, yeah, I am thinking very specifically about Companion's first trips to the past. Um, in that pool, obviously, you can also include something like um, Tooth and Claw, which is like that Victorian um, werewolf oh, drama, yeah. um, or <laughs> Madame, uh, the fight, go on the fireplace. Um, but I am, yeah, specifically thinking about The Unquiet Dead and uh, Shakespeare Code. Now, <clears throat> this probably has, this episode probably has more in common in its DNA with Unquiet Dead in that it treats its historical, uh, uh, it's, it treats its historical setting as a reality and not as like a um, a cute, fun like place to kind of play around in, which is definitely not Epcot, basically. <laughs> not Epcot, <laughs> exactly. Which is, I think, the cardinal sin of um, of the Shakespeare Code and why that episode, you know, even though it was like kind of enjoyable on a base level, isn't a successful episode. Um, which is that, you know, there's a lot of puns and jokes and humour at Shakespeare's expense, but it, we never really learn much about Shakespeare the person. There's a lot of really good, really funny Italian, or should I say Latin puns in this episode, <laughs> but they don't in any way uh, kind of like step on or like um, damage the dramatic uh, impetus and uh, drive of this episode. And so when we talk yeah. about it being nimble, I think that, is my main takeaway when you think about it in relation to past episodes is it's like it's able to create a world and, and revel in that world without ever making fun of it or being glib about it. Do you know what I mean? I do. I know exactly what you mean. I think that goes hand in hand with the fact that the science fiction elements are pretty nicely woven into the, you know, obviously, it you know, Pompeii, Volcano Goes Off, you know, there weren't uh, lava-based aliens there at the time. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's Doctor Who. It's going to do its Doctor Who thing. Um, but just like with that humour, I think it's important that even though these new concepts and these, like, really quite out-there concepts are folded into that real-life historical event, they are used to bolster the emotion of the event. Because mm. um, by the time you get to the volcano actually erupting, um, it... You know, it, it simultaneously boosts the Doctor's character, Donna's character, and still honours the fact that a really horrific thing happened to a bunch of people. Um, and I think the fact that it's able to do all of those things in the same story where you've got psychic witches and hmm. literal, like, creatures made of stone and lava burning people alive, um, that is impressive. <laughs> oh, totally. Um, and another thing I just thought of then while you were... Um I was going to say while you were talking. Were you going to say prattling on? No, that was Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I realise that's how it sounds and I fully can't escape that. But no, not while you were prattling on. Um, no, one of the things I was just thinking while you were talking was that this episode also, I think, benefits from not being tied to a specific historical person like those other past episodes yeah, have been. Yep. Uh, I know we'll get that celebrity historical later in the season, but like this isn't uh, this isn't Charles Dickens or Shakespeare. This is just an event that is big enough in its own reputation to warrant not needing a personality to get behind. It revels in the domesticity of Caecilius's family, in the scene setting of Pompeii, and which is also another really successful part of this episode because it looks a million bucks. You have to agree. Oh yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, that was one of the first things I noticed when I, uh, way back in, I don't know, I think it was like roughly around the time I had my wisdom teeth out, I ended up like just burning through a whole bunch of Doctor Who. Um, and th I think this was one of the ones I watched. I don't know. There was a lot of pain meds involved, but the point is, um, the first time I watched Fires of Pompeii as an adult, I was like, oh, okay. Doctor Who has... It's got that big time money now. Um, like th this feels like an expensive episode. Um, it does look incredible. The use of uh, real sets. Like I, I believe they actually went to Rome. Is that right? Yeah, they went to. Um, it was like a, a film studio in Rome. The since oh god, I, I, 
if I attempt to speak in an Italian accent during this episode, please just censor it because it's <laughs> offensive. I'm fully aware it's offensive. Um, <laughs> You're like, oh, it was the meatball studio. <laughs> It's less it's less that and more the fact and you can't see this but it's like uh when I'm speaking I'm doing the Mussolini like hand thing. So Oh, I just did the hand thing then. Don't worry. <laughs> I mean, look, I'm an Italian. I can give you a pass for that. Thank you. I really appreciate that um, because it's going to happen a lot. Um <laughs> it's the Cincinnita Studios. Cin okay. Cinecita, Cinecita probably actually. Cine like cinema blah blah blah. Um and it's where they filmed that drama Rome which I never watched, but I remember from, like, the poster of the Roman street with the blood running down it, um, which I think is, like, everywhere. Um, Yeah, so, like... Truly iconic. It is. And it's the first time the show in this iteration has gone overseas to film. Uh, And I think that's quite... It's like I think it's amazing that they did do it for this episode because it's not like they went to, like, somewhere with a famous landmark to get the cachet that is yeah. doing that. It's like, no, we just went to and, Rome and to film. And this isn't like a finale. And it's not know? a finale. It's, it's not a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> In the grand scheme of things, no, I suppose not. But they just, they went to Rome just because they knew they couldn't get that feel in a fucking back alley in Cardiff. And... Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, yeah, like, it, it just shows, like, there's just a lot of care and love that went into this episode that's evident. And that also, like, extends beyond the sets. You know, uh, costuming is really good. Uh, Murray Gold's score is, is fantastic, as always. Mm. Um, but for me, I think what really made this episode feel special um, is the... I got very classic Who vibes from a lot of its mm. um, production choices. Uh, there is obviously a fair bit of CGI involved in the um, the monsters themselves. Um, but for a lot of the other effects, especially the stuff concerning the Sibylline Sisterhood, um, it's just practical. Um, you know, it, it's very simple things like a, um, was it, a, a transparent flame, um, you know, superimposed over Donna while she's speaking to imply the fact that, you know, she's being telepathically projected to the other sisters. Uh, they do this thing where they've got eyes painted on the back of their hands and they hold them up over their face as a way of communicating with each other. Um, and it's just... I know a lot A lot of people find that stuff kind of like hokey and silly. I think Doctor Who needs a bit of hokey and silly sometimes. Um, and when you are able to strip it back and just be like, hey, look, this is just ultimately just Doctor Who and it's going to be this way sometimes. Uh, and you lean all the way in the way that Pfizer Pompey does. Um, I think you get a really wonderful result. Mm. I think it's just good visual shorthand, right? Like to you don't have to do like a weird kind of effect to get the impression that they're talking to one another. The hands over the eyes, like... Mm-hmm you you get what's happening and without it having to be major or signposted heavily mm. what's happening um and you're right you're absolutely right it reminds i think you've made this point it reminds me of um in Fi- family of blood with the green light on son of mine's face uh yeah exactly little effects that go a, a long way <laughs> totally um i am um, cu- i also oh. No, I was just going to say, I'm just curious about what you mean when you say it reminds you of classic Who. Yeah, so uh, I guess... I think I texted this to you the first time I watched it. Um, and the, the more I watch it, the more I, I'm like really married to this idea. To me, Pfizer Pompeii feels like an entire classic serial condensed into 48 minutes. Um, and I think that probably is why it doesn't work for some people because it is trying to do quite a bit of storytelling in that time. Um, but I think as long as you go at, it, at its pace with it, you, you probably end up having a good time. So like, to me, there are clear points throughout the episode where it'd be like, okay, that's where the commercial break would be. And then, you know, it'd be half an hour dedicated to whatever they were tackling within that time. Um, or not the commercial break, the, like the cliffhanger break kind of thing. Yeah, they're the cliffhanger. Exactly right. There, there are definitive cliffhangers throughout where you're like, oh, yeah, that's where it would cut to credits and then you'd have to tune in the next night to see what, you know, the fires of Pompeii, what happens next? What? And yeah, I, I just think that it's it's heavy on the melodrama. Um, it takes massive swings. And when you combine that with stuff like the practical effects, the uh, the classical setting and whatnot, the the real sets, it just, to me, it, it speaks to the part of my brain that feels like a warm hug when I'm watching those like stuffy old Doctor Who's, if that makes sense. I've never heard you talk like this before. And that's why I'm so curious to hear more about your thoughts, because like, I love classic Who, but I always relegate it to the part of my brain that is like, don't talk to anyone about this ever. (laughs) So hearing you say that. Why why would we talk about it on a Doctor Who podcast? No, I know. I know. But there is a definite, like there's classic Who and there's modern Who and more often than not, yeah. people only like one 
or the other. And it's very rare that it kind of cross bounds. So it's just nice hearing you say that. Um, I'm, I, I, this might be a fun little game to play. Just like, where do you imagine those cliffhangers taking place? Uh, yeah, so look, I have put a lot of thought into this. Uh, I would say that the first cliffhanger would be the scene where Evelina and the uh, the dude, the Lucius guy, are using their psychic abilities to like see through the Doctor and Donna's like uh, you know sort of disguises and whatnot. And she says, you know, you are a Lord of Time. I think you cut right there, and you got your first cliffhanger. Second one is when we first see uh, the uh, pyrovile break up through the floor, and he's revealed as like this you know towering monstrosity of, of stone and lava. Uh, fourth, uh, third cliffhanger would be uh, the volcano erupting, obviously. And then your last episode is essentially like this mad dash out of Pompeii. That's really, really fascinating because like, if we took that as gospel, uh, your classic who fourth episode would be entirely devoted to Donna trying to save the residents of Pompeii. And like, that's, look, I love classic who, but it isn't big on the character stuff. Um, and I can't imagine a classic Who episode that would that would do that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So I, I don't think I have. But this a, is my classic Who. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I don't think I really have a point with that. It's more just a observation. <laughs> yeah. Look, that's fair. Um, I I just think that there is there's enough meat on this bone that you could make it into a four course meal. Um, mm. And that's not to say that I don't love what they do with it already. I think the condensed runtime and the fact that, like we said, it's light on its feet. It just moves between its elements so smoothly, in my opinion. Um, I love what we got, um, but it's the kind of thing where like, you know, a, a four part, a classic or like a, a Doctor Who novel, like there is so much going on in the fires of Pompeii mm. that I just want to spend as much time here as possible. You're right, actually. You're right. And that probably has something to do with like, what a great cast of characters uh, we get in this episode because there's just so many people running about that make up the space of this kind of Pompeii community. Uh, there's Caecilius' yeah. family, there's Lucius, there's the Sibylline, um, the there's random, random extra street that sells the TARDIS. <laughs> Him, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the mother who's like, get away from my baby. Um, all these people. Um, <laughs> And all of which, like, combine to, like, I think, like, what we alluded to before, to make a sense of time and place, and that isn't related to kind of, like, spectacle of a person or something like that. Um, yeah, exactly. And, I mean, you have to humanise Pompeii if you're going to hang the emotional climax of the episode on Donna trying to save Pompeii. Um, totally. Because otherwise it's just kind of, like... Oh, it's it's Pompeii. It's history, um, but you you know, in having a cast of diverse, not in not even likable characters, right? It's just you get the sense that like, oh yeah, there's the soothsayer who's up himself and a bit of an asshole, and he's the bureaucrat and whatnot, and then the Sibylline sisterhood of their own their own interesting thing going on because they're not entirely evil. They're just like misled by these aliens, mm. uh, and then obviously the family itself and those extras in the street do make up. Um, a small part of the, 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 yeah, like you said, the wider sort of painting of Pompeii here. Totally. Um, I think the most successful element or maybe, uh, an element that we could to, to zero on in is like the decision to introduce, like I just, for lack of a better word, like a nuclear family into this story. (laughs) Um, actually I don't think it's for lack of a better word. Like I think it's the perfect word. It's a nuclear family. It's mother, son, father. Uh, that's the same thing. No, wait. Let me start all this over. No, again. yeah, you, you're just like, it's a nuclear family. The components of a nuclear family <laughs> are as such. <laughs> father, mother, daughter, son. I think that Donna even, like, says that in the episode. Like, it's very explicitly about what if an ordinary family what would an ordinary family be like if they lived through a disaster, a natural disaster of like this kind of scale? Um, and it's not a perspective we've seen Doctor Who take. I, I can't think. Yeah. I don't think we've ever seen like this kind of perspective before, because when you think about other trips to the past or like any Doctor Who episode, really, it's a, usually like a ragtag group of people or, um, a ship crew is probably like a good example people who are disconnected from one another but like form a a unit of family but aren't officially family this is just an out and out family and 
I, the reason why I guess I find it so interesting is because like um, thinking forward to stuff that we get uh, later in the season where the Doctor gets a sort of found family of his own and thinking for even further than that to like illusions about the doctor's mother and father. Like it's an aspect of this season and Russell's writing of this season that I think is like something that it would be good to keep an eye on as we keep talking about this kind of conception of family. Cause it was never quite there with, with it was there with Billy Piper and Rose with her family, but that was separate from the doctor and it was much more of the romantic angle. That's definitely the case with Martha but with Donna, obviously, she doesn't occupy that space, and so you get a greater focus on what, on sort of more platonic connections, shall we say? Uh, yeah. So I guess to to try to maybe hone us in a little bit and and talk about the episode. Um, let's let's start with the family, like you just said. Um, Peter <laughs> Peter Capaldi, my my doctor, my my man is uh, in this episode as uh, the father of the family, Caecilius, and he is just eating that scenery. <laughs> he is fucking gorging himself uh and i love it i i think that when peter capaldi is allowed to have fun he is the most fun actor doctor who has in its arsenal uh and well obviously i'm glad they brought him back but um the the family that he's also paired with i think are you know not not much more than um I'm not going to say like cardboard cutouts. They're, they're archetypes essentially. Um, you know, I think like mm. the, the, the gifted daughter, uh, you know, like the, the lays about son who all he really cares about is going out drinking with his mates. Uh, the kind of um, status focused uh, matriarch of the family who's concerned about what people coming into her home think of her children. Um, and then you've got Caecilius who is essentially just like, he's the dad joke, you know, like he, he means well, he's a bit of adult, um, but he's ultimately just trying to do right by his family. Um, and I think that sometimes when Doctor Who uses writing that that's, that is that broad, uh, it can be a problem. Um, I've certainly had a problem with it before in, in these seasons that we've covered, but I think in this instance, it works out well because you need to get a sort of broad stroke understanding of the emotional reality of Pompeii through this family. And so it's okay for me that they're archetypal, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. I just, I think it goes back to what we're talking about with that visual shorthand. Like it doesn't need to be uh, an in-depth discussion of family. It just needs to be a graspable, uh, accessible yeah. family to get at the core concept that we're, this episode's driving at, which is like the ordinary person that the Doctor, like I guess, casually sweeps aside in his journeys through time and space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly right. Um, so I think the, um, the, the daughter, uh, Evelyn, Evelina, sorry, um, is, is a good jumping off point as well because she has ties to the, the Sibylline sisterhood who mm. are a fascinating little group of characters. The Sibylline are cool. Like they look, they look really cool. They, this is one of the classic who kind of throwbacks that, uh, I thought of when you made that point, which is like, they visually resemble the sisterhood of Khan from the brain of mm. Morbius episode. Um, and there's a great tradition of like witchy kind of cults that, uh, obviously is right up our alley. <laughs> um, they, uh, <laughs> someone who numbers them among them is a, a fledgling Karen Gillan prior to, <laughs> Uh, her shoot to fame uh, in only a year's time. No, two years' time, I guess, from this perspective. Um, do you want to... <laughs> There's one particular moment that just, like, makes me fucking cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we are we are really amused. There's a... Because uh, basically, when, when the Doctor and Donna arrive in Pompeii, um, Karen Gillan's um, priestess character is like shadowing them but she's dressed in bright red robes and every time she pokes her head around the corner to look at them she exaggeratedly opens her eyes in this huge way um while she she's kind of like a very like ferret kind of energy to her um and eventually she overhears them talking about um the sisterhood having visions and the doctor kind of excuse like you know brushes it away offhand uh and as they walk away she steps out of her hiding spot into the middle of a 
busy street, throws her hands up above her face and just starts talking to herself <laughs> from everybody else's perspective while specifically being like, oh my God, he's mocking us. And it's like, what do you expect? <laughs> it just makes me fucking laugh because like, just shove the camera just slightly so you don't see people behind her. And <laughs> it would have just looked so much better. The fact that she steps out and there's just like shoppers all around her and she's like, oh, they're calling me mad. <laughs> They think I'm some crazy person that talks to herself. Like, oh, honey. Oh, honey, why would that be? I don't know. Like, (laughs) no, it's uh, it's it's a good bit of unintentional comedy, and I think that you know, in the same way that when you go back and revisit a classic, who you end up laughing at the things that they think were serious at the time. Mm. I think this is just one of those moments, and so I do find it very endearing. Um, and the Sibylline Sisterhood, you, you might be able to speak to this. I. I doubt it's got a reference in Classic Who, but uh, eventually the Doctor ends up at the Sisterhood's like chapel, um, and he's like, "Oh, I I knew Sibylline, and if she saw what you'd become, she'd be you know fucking ashamed of you." Essentially, um, is that a reference to an older Who story, or is that just? Uh, yeah, actually, no. Like, there's enough DNA in the Sisterhood of Khan for me to think that they like uh, there's the same kind of tactics, but that that I guess refers to an unspoken, unseen adventure. The Sibylline themselves are real, though, it should be noted. Uh, and I think you did a little bit of research on this, James, didn't you? Yeah, um, it, it seems like there was uh, something called the Sibylline Books, which um, the last king of Rome would rev- like sort of refer to during, like, I don't know, shitty times during the Republic and whatnot, um, which did seem to be this concept of, like, oh, a mystical text kind of thing. Um, so, like, again, I think that's a cool real-life thing that they've drawn on there. Mm. I think having the Doctor allude to the fact that, you know, there was a real-life psychic called Sibylline and he had, like, a little fling with her is it's very Doctor Who, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm very okay with all of that concept. Um, totally. And and then this this is oh sorry sorry I was just going to say piggyback off what you're saying and like um, you know the sibyline were real the augur that Lucius uh, represents for the town for Pompeii is a real concept. There's like mention of household gods. So I think and like a lot of explanations from David Tennant or the Doctor um, about what those things are as well. Which I think also feeds into mm. your feeling like this is a classic Who episode because it has more of a like historical education bent to it, um, but it also just shows that there is like a significant research gone into making this feel like a real environment to be in. Yeah, it's like a degree of care taken, basically. Um, and, and I think that's really great. Especially, uh, like I said at the top of the episode, the fact that it takes these, like, uh, real-life historical sort of nuggets and then just infuses them with a bit of that, like, fun sci-fi stuff. Um, so, like, the Sibylline Sisterhood are being guided by... Um, as essentially, it's, it's discovered that they're breathing in um, tiny, tiny specks of uh, essentially alien rock life. Let's just simplify it to that. Um, and because of that, they are slowly getting stern- turned into stones so that they can be uh, breeding grounds for like this new rock race that's trying to rise up because it's been buried in the earth for 17,000 years. I don't know, some shit. It, you know, very Doctor Who stuff. <laughs> um, and um, so then it's revealed that like the, the head of the sisterhood is fully stone at this point, And she's the one with the weird sci-fi uh, Cyberman voice. And just strictly from a practical effect point of view I think she looks horrifying mm, mm. it's a really awful kind of uh, effect and like it's not graceful or like satisfying in any kind of way when you look at it and I think that's the point is like it's just out and out horrific what's happening to her yeah, exactly. Because she's still got like the human form, but she's just stone, and like she's got kind of like dents where her eyes should be. It's just mm. oh, it's ugh. it's really really creepy. Um, and that's obviously when we get into like the the overarching big sci-fi plot of the episode, um, which is that these aliens have been giving the people of Pompeii, um essentially the uh, psychic abilities that are then interfering with the time rift quote-unquote caused by Pompeii in the first place it's it's a bit wibbly wobbly um it's one of the more annoying it doesn't need to be anything more it's yeah it's one of the more annoying things about this episode is like David Tennant delivers a lot of exposition in like a quick rapid fire way when he's pointing the water pistol at the high priestess and he's like oh so and and you're like I needed to hear that. <laughs> I, I, yeah, for sure. And again, that's why I say, like, 
make this longer, you know, like mm. let's really explore these concepts. Because I think like it's, it's a really cool concept. The idea of like, you know, big historical events on earth causing what essentially are like, you know, fissures in time and space. And, you know, if a psychic being was there at that exact same time, they would have the ability to see through time and space. Like that's a really cool mm. concept. Uh, it's just one of the many, many concepts that fires Pompeii is already playing with. The whole idea of, like, uh, faith giving people uh, sort of specific special insights and whatnot. Uh, the Sibylline Sisterhood are obviously a, uh, a construction of faith and whatnot. Um, and all of that does feed into, uh, you know, one of the episodes, like, overarching bigger points that it's making, which is that, you know, the Pfizer Pompeii is very, very concerned with the concept of of, uh, of godlike figures, basically, and, and of things outside of the, uh, let's say, like, the mortal plane of, of your ability to affect things and whatnot. Um, this manifests in two really interesting ways. One of them is an overarching point with uh, the Doctor, which we'll get to in a second. But first of all, uh, I specifically want to call out, there's a scene where... Um, every all all the major players in the story are gathered in uh, Kykelius's house and the uh, uh, auger of the town. So Lucius and Kykelius's daughter have like a psychic off <laughs> to try to... Uh, you know, predict and see the truth about the Doctor and Donna. And it is so tense. <laughs> it's really good, isn't it? And, like, you... I think you... I'm just going to be explicit here. You, more than me, like this scene. And I think it probably speaks more to your um, uh, preferences, shall we say? Because um, I remember watching this scene and being like, oh, this is just, like, a hokey kind of... Ooh, we're all psychic and it's spooky. But I think you saw beyond that to, like, the actual majesty of what's happening here. Um, would you agree? Well, yeah, like, you know, yeah, I, I would agree. And it, it does speak to sort of my, my taste in storytelling and whatnot. But um, I, I, I think I like it so much because it is... It's doing everything that it needs to do for the story. You know, it's setting up the stakes of what the people in Pompeii are able to do. It's delivering some pretty good character work for the Doctor. And it's setting up future stories for Donna. Um, all while being really well acted and really well shot. Um, mm. I, I just think it's like fuck yeah, Doctor Who kind of moment for me. It's definitely got some power to it. And it it, it feels the same way, I guess, as like um, in earlier seasons where it would be alluded to what the, like, because like, you know, you have to remember that it wasn't until Runaway Bride that the Doctor's home planet was even like net said out loud. And it, it feels like it alludes back to those like episodes that would like allude to the time war or like what went on mm. in his past. Totally. Um. And yeah, like it all culminates in that, like you're a lord, sir, a lord of time, the daughter of London stuff. Yeah, that's the clunkiest line. But then you also get that amazing line from that same guy when he's just like, you know, oh, is that so man from Gallifrey? And just the the weight that the word Gallifrey still has in this era of Mm. Doctor Who is is such a nice thing to sort of go back to, especially with where we're at now with Gallifrey, which is just like oh, we'll just toss another Gallifrey destruction on the Barbie. It's fine. Like, it's it's a whole fucking thing at this point in the show. Um, oh, but God. <laughs> I'm not wrong. No, it's just, that was, oh, that was good. Um, uh, and there's also, I, I, I didn't realise this uh, going back into this episode, but, like, this episode, like, name checks so many of the different um, running threads of the season. Um in that scene in particular, there's, you know, Lucius says to Donna, you know, there's something on your back, uh, which is just like, oh, it's so eerie and spooky. Hearing Donna this early on in the series be, like, marked with this thing of, like, you know, there, there is something on your back and knowing where that goes would turn left. Um, yep. You know, the the tragedy of Donna Noble uh, is is already stewing in the background of this show. Um, and I, I do like it here. I think I think it works really, really well. Um, and then, like, you know, it's that cute play on words as well. Like, you know, you call yourself noble. Like, hmm. it's so clever with the way that it doles out those little bits of information that these characters shouldn't know about these two um and i just oh, i think it's just chef kiss you're right you're right actually and i've just now realized like donna noble time lord like it's all fuck it's mm-hmm. all there <laughs> it's all there Pfizer pompeii is the shit <laughs> oh my god there's also the line where lucius is like doctor she is returning which i hate uh, cause it's like, can you just let me go five minutes then? I'm thinking about fucking Rose, but anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, look, I, I do agree. Again, Rose hangs over everything, but at least it's subtle here. Um, and especially, you know, right after we see that sort of, uh, not cliffhanger, but like that last shot of, um, uh, partners in crime there it is um <laughs> I, I i didn't i didn't dislike that here um and i think that the other thing that pfizer pompey does so well here is it's establishing of like the exact wrong series of events for this doctor to be experiencing at this time in his timeline because we are very much entering into tenants um you know, his Lord era, he, he is a time Lord and he is about to fully step into that in, in like a really disastrous way. Mm. And I think starting it off this early and in a story where it's this thematically appropriate as well, because of what it does with the Donna stuff, I just, it's so clever. Well, totally, because in an episode where Donna explicitly calls into question the Doctor's entire ethics around travelling in time and space, it's at the same time setting up what we have always talked about, which is that, you know, the Doctor definitely isn't aware of the privileges of his status as a time lord, and they use that word very explicitly. He is a lord, he is noble, he is of nobility. Um, and, it, yeah, you're right. Like, I, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that the show can actually do the things that it's doing <laughs> right now, but it does feel, like, it does feel, it does feel surprising. Um. It does. And I think this is just a natural thing that happens when you stop focusing on maybe a bit more of a superfluous element of the companion and give them something to actually do with the Doctor. And that's, that's not to sort of discount love stories. Like, I, I love a good love story, but I don't think the past three seasons have been good love stories. I, well, I think that they have sacrificed those characters on the altar of trying to do... A semi-romantic thing. And the main problem with those love stories in general, and we're deviating, so I'll bring us back swiftly, but the main problem with those love stories in general was that they didn't have anything new to say about the Doctor. The Doctor can love... We already knew that. It's not... Yeah. It, it, it doesn't expose uh, something that needs to be... That can be explored in an interesting way, uh, like this episode does with Donna. Um, yeah. Which is probably a very good segue... I mean, it was until you pointed out that it was a good segue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, me. Anyway. Oh, you. Yes. Donna, 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 Donna. Um, doesn't work as well, but I'm going with it anyway. Uh, Donna's involvement in this story is just the beating heart of the entire thing. Um, mm. And it's probably the most, like, bold-faced reaction we've seen from a companion to time travel. Right, like, Donna isn't just... Because, like, you know, initially when they, they land in Pompeii and she realises that, like, oh, we can try and save these people then, and he's like, well, actually, no, like, don't... That's not going to happen, right? And they, they, they quibble about it. And then, you know, during the middle stretch of the episode, um, the stuff with the volcano and how that end, actually ends up coming about got, sort of takes it up to another step. And then once they're back on the streets when the volcano has gone off, it is just outright horror what they film with Donna in that stuff there um and I think that that escalation across the the sort of the three acts of the story is why it is such a satisfying story for Donna and especially as it relates to the Doctor it is a, it is a very much a Doctor companion story absolutely and it does while you were saying that it did make me think about like can you imagine Rose or Martha taking the Doctor to task as much as mm. as much as uh, as Donna does here, I think that her character is conceived in such a way that she would do those things. But then it's like, well, what does that say about the past two companions you've created that they you think they wouldn't do that? Um, yeah, I'm not making a point. I mean, there's that. Qu Go on. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, there's that, that quote that I wrote down in our little show notes, but um, uh, I think at some point, like, the Doctor tells Donna to, like, be quiet. And, he, and she just says, I don't know what kids you've been flying around in that box with, but you're not telling me to shut up. And I think that that is... It's not disrespectful to Rose and, and Martha who have come before, but I do think it is very much establishing that, like, hey, the Don... Like, the Don... The Donna's relationship to the Doctor is going to be very explicitly a different dynamic that is going to actively challenge him now. Mm. Um, and 
I think it sucks that we didn't get that with the past two. But again, in the same way that like you have to kind of wait until your fourth season before you can start getting all introspective and existential, I, I get why it took a little bit of time to get to this point. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think it... I think if you wanted to sort of lend the, the choices a bit more like uh, weight that we don't know if they had because we weren't there, um, maybe it could be a commentary on like like maybe the doctor just isn't a very good judge of character and of what he needs. And so he picks the wrong people. And that would be cool if that were true, if that Mm. was what the story was. And that this time around, he's like, no, I'm actually going to pick some, I'm going to like choose to travel with somebody who I think is good for me, not somebody that I necessarily like. Um, And I think he does like Donna. I'm not, not saying that it's, um, Oh yeah. 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 Um, but it is all wrapped into it because, like, there was the hesitation. There was the initial hesitation in last week's episode to, of taking Donna on board. And, you know, maybe part of that is that he knows that she's not going to just... She's going to grab him by the hand and she's not going to let things go. And he might be uncomfortable with that, like, slightly yeah. inferior position. And I think that totally feeds into, like, the inferiority complex that we've seen this Doctor sort of inhabit in the last few seasons and, like, the need to impress people... Think it all is there um and it's definitely there in this episode with like donna's like dogged ambition to just not go against the doctor but she has like a dog with a bone with trying to like save the people of pompeii and it's not just a scene that's thrown away at the top of the episode it's like it like you say it just keeps coming back she keeps trying to affect change mm. where she can and in that respect she's a very active com- character Oh yeah, hugely. Um, one one small note on their compa- uh, their dynamic before we move on from it, but like you know, I think it's also a very human thing, which is that like sometimes you don't want to be seen, and I think what Donna offers the Doctor is hmm. the first time that he's truly being seen for what he for who he is. Hmm. Um, whereas like Rose had a very specific interpretation of him, and then Martha's interpretation of him was even more specific based on Rose's interactions with him. And so by the time you get to Donna, who's a character completely divested from those dynamics, um, she's able to come in and be like wait a minute, what, what, what's your deal? Um, mm. And that is, it's a very organic thing to try to turn away from that because not everybody wants to be known. You know, totally. I think there's the term like, you know, the horror of being known by another person, like, because it is such an exposing thing. Um, and, and I think that's why their dynamic works so well across the season. And he, I think it, the show's made a lot of points to sort of say that he's more than happy to like play that role for them because he's, it's a mask he can hide behind, you know? He's not exactly going yeah. to be able to do that with with Donna, and I think, yeah, not sort of because I haven't rewatched the rest of the season yet, so I don't know if this actually does eventuate or not. Um, but it's really exciting to sort of think about like how he can change as a result of Donna, and like what kind of things will come to the fore. Yeah, and I mean, this episode certainly does, uh, it's, you know, like I said before, it's the first uh, sort of, like, bit of that mask being fully chipped away that that reveals, like, the Lord of Time. And not just a time, like, we hear the word Time Lord a lot in Doctor Who, but I love that this episode specifically is like, you are a Lord of Time. It's such a pointed Mm. use of the word. Um, And so, by the time that you get to the end of the Fires of Pompeii, where they're in these, like, ash-covered streets, the sun has been blotted out, Martha's trying to save a crying... Donna. Oh, I'm sorry, not Martha. Donna is trying to save, like, a crying child. Everyone's just running around screaming and whatnot. And then the Doctor's like, we have to leave. Like, it's done. What's done is done. We are leaving right now. And then on their way back, they pass uh, Caecilius and his family. And Donna's just absolute horror mm. at the fact that he just looks at them and keeps walking. Um, and obviously that incredible scene that follows where they, they get into the TARDIS and she's like, you have to go back. Please just save someone. You know, she she accepts in the end that like time is going to do what time is going to do. That This event has already been established and happened. And that, you know, part of the power that, you know, the TARDIS offers is that you can't, you've got to accept the responsibility that goes along with that and you can't save everybody. But the the fact that she's able to break through to him and have him save just someone is simultaneously an amazing character moment for Donna because it validates her point of view. It means that, like you said, she is playing a very active role in this story. She is able to affect real change. 
while also in a really smart way establishing the first like hey the doctor is going to start breaking his own rules now and mm. that is going to snowball in a really catastrophic way by the time we get to the end of uh, tenants run totally totally i hadn't even thought about that or like the very explicit visual uh symmetry between that moment of the tardis opening up with the light behind him and then a very mm. similar moment in the waters of mars which is coming up in a bit. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, to- uh, gosh, the more I think about this episode, the more I'm like, fuck, this is like, <laughs> this yeah, is just really this good. This is Doctor Who. This is just really <laughs> like, good. Um, I think you and I have said this before in like maybe personal conversations, but like, I think simultaneously Doctor Who is the best and worst show on television. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when it's bad, it's it's genuinely shit. Uh, but when it's good, it is like nothing else. And and to me, Fires of Pompeii is one of those examples of like, this is, this is fucking Doctor Who. This is why we love Doctor Who so much. Totally, totally. And I'm really glad that like I got this ep- second opportunity to revisit it and reassess um, this episode because it's definitely one that's worth re-watching. Um, I'm doubly excited to watch Planet of the Ood now. Although my... <gasps> that gasp was all I needed, really. <laughs> Sorry, Planet of the Ood. I'm I'm as high on Planet of the Ood as I am with Fires of Pompeii. Maybe even slightly higher. Like, what? Are, this is a banger era for us. <laughs> okay, I'll reserve my thoughts on what I was just about to say about Planet of the Ood till next week then because, like, um, yeah, I... I, I it's funny because, like, yeah, like, P- Partners in Crime, we watched it and we were both like, oh, you know, the Doctor and Donna are obviously great, but, you know, nah, what's going on? Um, this episode just ramped it up to a whole different level. Yeah. This is uh, this is confident, uh, smart storytelling, and I, I just really, really love it. Um, are there any sort of rapid-fire thoughts you want to uh, get out about this episode? Because, like, we've, we've talked a lot about Fires of Pompeii, mm. but there are still so many things that we could talk about. Um, we won't do that because it's getting late. Mm. Um, but, yeah, like, any any quick-fire ones you want to uh, get out there? I guess the only thing that really needs to be said is that, like, this is a good David Tennant episode. I, I actually don't think there's much more to be said on that point other than it's it might be that... If you think about, like, or if you know, we've seen uh, interviews with him and Catherine Tate, like, they have an obvious chemistry that's just, like, bleeding out of the screen. And it may be, maybe I'm lending Catherine Tate too much, like, um, uh, sort of... Uh, fuck, why can't I ever get the expressions I want to say out? Um, <laughs> maybe uh, I'm giving Catherine Tate too much credit here, Um but I definitely think that she brings out this side of David Tennant's performance that uh, is, like, so enjoyable to watch. Um, I think, yeah, I think this is probably one of his more stronger episodes f- to date. Uh, yes. Yep. Com- completely agreed. Um, my, like, rapid-fire final thought is just the the scene where they're stuck in the escape pod in the middle of Mount Vesuvius and the Doctor realises that the only reason Pompeii happens in the first mm. place is because he's the one there to blow it up. Because if they don't blow it up, then it means the aliens are going to basically win. Um, and the uh, the way that Donna has to process and react to that information in such a, a, a swift way, and it manifests as her being like, don't worry about us. Like, ne- never mind about us. We've, we've got to save the history, basically. Um, and I just think that, yeah, as, as we've said, this episode is is Donna's episode for sure. I, um, and yeah, I, hmm. just, I just love it. I think that scene, it, it, it reminds me of in The Unquiet Dead where they're being ravaged by zombies and the Doctor's like, oh, I'm so glad I met you, Rose. And, you know... Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. And, like, watching that scene now... And I think this ep- this scene also is sort of similar. Is like, how can you feel that way? You've just met this person, but whereas I felt that with the uh, Unquiet I mean- Dead, uh, here it's it's far. Like, I you have to keep reminding yourself that like there has been a whole year where Donna's like basically had time to sort of build up this relationship with him. Yeah, exactly. And so it's got time behind it. It's got like it's got unspokenness to it and that feeds into uh like that very last exchange they have where the doctor's like you know you're right you know i think i do need somebody and donna just says yeah (laughs) Mm. yeah she's so 
sure of herself and it's such a refreshing character trait for a companion and i'm glad that like moving forward it is one that they do consistently incorporate into the companions um we don't get much of the like oh well i don't know doctor from this point on in in the show i mean i don't know Um, you could argue against that (laughs) but i won't not right now because who are you talking about oh 7b clara 7b we don't have time (laughs) we do not have time we will get to 7b clara um anyway uh yeah no i it's it's real good it's it's real good what are you what are you giving the fires of pompeii oh it's an a for sure maybe even an a plus but i just uh, that feels like reserved for like episodes unparalleled goodness um a for sure Okay. Yeah, I get it. Um, we, we've said this before on the show, but I, I think that for a lot of people, the difference between nine out of ten and ten out of ten, or an A and an A plus, that last push is a is just a personal one. Uh, so for me, like this is an A plus. Like this is this is my Doctor Who. Oh, I'm so glad we finally found it. Right, took a little while there. We got got a bit lost in the weeds during um two and three, but that's fine. Um, as always, thank you so much for joining us to to talk about all things Doctor Who. Um, if you want, uh, as we said at the top of the show, you can reach out and have your thoughts and feelings read on the show by emailing us at twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. That's two the word two, and we are also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at twoheartspod the number two. Yeah, and as always, uh, thanks for. For listening, and if you if you like the show, if you want to let us know how you feel about it, just drop us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show, because like we see that and it makes us feel really good. Um, I have been Callum, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at theatricallum. Uh, and I am always James. You can find me on Twitter at OMG More James. We will be back in two weeks' time to talk about the planet of the Ood. But until then, uh, be kind, stay safe, and uh, have a good week. Bye. Bye.